Welcome to Cornerstone College Ministries Podcast. I'm Blake Brown, the college pastor at Stillwater Bible Church. You're joining us for our semester study of Philippians. So, um, as we're in Philippians, right, think about this. Has everyone, anyone here ever been in a slump and it seems like your attitude won't change no matter what you do, right? Who you talk to or what you watch or anything, right? You've just been in a slump at some point in your life ever. Um, well, this morning we're going to see Paul discuss issues um, like disputes, joy, anxiety, and peace. He's going over a lot this morning, a lot to cover. Uh, so let's think about those times, the times when we're anxious and times whenever we're maybe you know, disputing with other people as we study this morning. So we're going to be looking at Philippians 4, 1 through 9. I put it on the board that we're doing 4, 1 through 9 and 4, 10 through 14 next week. So... Um, I'm going to read and we'll get started. It says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask also to help. Ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much uh, for your word again and just how great and how much of a privilege it is to just be able to, um, to see it and to study it and to be able to apply it to our lives. God, I pray that as we look this morning that we would really analyze our lives and see where we're at and see maybe where we've been at some points. Um, and see how we can apply this and how we can focus on you uh, first and foremost in our lives. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Okay. Who starts off, and what's the first word that we have here? Therefore. Therefore. What do we ask when we see therefore? therefore. What's the therefore, therefore, right? So um, it's cheesy, and I kind of hate it, but that's what we ask, right? Um, therefore, my beloved brother, who I long to see. Okay, so therefore is a summary statement. He's coming from this idea, this idea of walking in diligence, right? Make sure you're diligent in your, in your walk, you're in humility. Make sure that you're obeying your humility and obedience and following the example of these faithful believers. He's already had the example of Christ, the example of Epaphroditus, the example of Timothy and of Paul himself. He says, follow these examples and keep pressing forward, right? Keep pressing on. Um, don't forget what lies behind and press on. And so he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy, my crown, in this way stand firm. So in that way, right, they just talked about. And look at this language he uses here, right? This language, it's Greek. No, um, but this language he says, right, whom I long to see, my beloved brethren, my joy and my crown. This is a close relationship he has. If we weren't sure about that before, well, he says um, beloved twice in this one verse. And so he's writing this from prison, remember, right, from house arrest. Um, I don't think Paul is immune to loneliness. He's chained to a guard or has a guard there every single day with him. 
uh, and there's likely he has visitors and stuff that come in, but ultimately he's, he's alone a lot of the times. And so you can kind of see that coming through here, right? My beloved brother whom I long to see, my joy and my crown. So Paul is, is very, like, he's very, very loving here, right? He's very, very, has a close relationship. He's, he's, he's expressing that here. And so he longs to see them, right? He wants to see them. We talked about that earlier in the, in the, in the uh, letter. He says, like, I may come see you. I may not, right? There are two ways of freedom out of this place. Either I die and to be with Christ or I live to set me free and I get to go and, and live for Christ, right? As he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Um, and then uh, he says this. He says, my joy and my crown, or my joy and crown. That's cool, isn't it? Like, so many people I would say, my joy and my crown. I, I was describing a people group or a person and stuff. Um, but it, it's a product of his toil, right? It's like, listen, I've been, I've been helping you all. You've been helping your partners in ministry. I've been kind of helping lead you guys up in the faith. And you guys are doing well, right? You're my joy and my crown. I can point to you. It's like, that's a reward for me, right? To see the fact that you've grown up and that you've, you've matured in the faith and that you're living faithfully. And so they're the product of his toil. Okay, so he says, listen, I long to see you, my beloved brethren, my joy and my crown. In this way, right? therefore, in this way, stand firm in the faith. He commands them to stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So this way, right, we talk about this way is humility and discipline. Press on towards the upward call of Christ. Get to know Christ better and better and be of one mind and of one purpose. Remember that from a ways back in the letter. He's talking about how be of one mind and of one purpose with one goal. Set in one thing. So Paul has an example after this, right? An example of how to apply this. So look at verse 2. It says this, I urge um, Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul has addressed a lot in his letters. I mean, like, there's a lot of letters he has in the New Testament. Right? He wrote basically the whole Bible at this point. But this is different. He normally has issues with the church he's dealing with. Right? They ask him questions and he answers them. Or he's like, hey, y'all are doing really poorly, and so you need to do better. But here's different. Paul actually addresses individuals. He is name-calling here. These two women, Iodia and Syntyche, who apparently are not living in harmony. Now, do you see that as being an issue with what he's written so far on the letter? Yeah, right? He's talking about being of one mind, having humility under Christ, right? Knowing just like Christ meant to the Father, um, that we should submit to him as well and everything. Um, the issue that these two are not living in harmony in Christ, right? It says that. It says um, to live in harmony in the Lord. You might have, um, your translation might say like live of one mind, right, in the Lord or to be unified in the Lord, something like that. You don't have something similar to that in their Bibles? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Something like that, right? There's this idea of being in one mind, living in harmony in Christ. It seems like they're struggling to be unified in Christ. He probably says this to remind them of their submission to Christ, right? Listen, you're under Christ. That's who you are. So be unified in that. And that they're believers. They're not each other's enemies. Sometimes we can have little things that get caught up between believers even. And we can think that like, oh, this person's like this. I can never talk to them. And you're just like, there's a divide there and causing division. But ultimately he says, listen. Your believers are unified in Christ. You're in the body of Christ. Put our faith in Christ, we have eternal life. And 
you're a part of that, right? You are unified within that with those people. People who are, you know, praying this morning, we, we prayed for the missionaries in Haiti who've been kidnapped and are held ransom by a gang in Haiti. There's 17 uh, missionaries, including their children, who've been kidnapped and are held ransom. And we're praying for them because they're in the body of Christ and we're unified with them. We have a special relationship with them. And so um, he says, listen, remember that you're unified in Christ. You're unified in the Lord. You're not each other's enemies. But Paul has been very harsh in some of his letters. Look at 1 Corinthians in particular. and He's like, y'all are awful, right? Like even the unbelievers think this is bad what you're doing. But here he's very gentle. Right? Do you see the language he uses? He says, I urge you, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony. He says, I indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women, right? And so it's not this command. He has a lot of commands in this passage we're looking at this morning. This isn't one of them. He's just an urging. He's like, I urge you to do this. While he's naming their names, which is a big deal, he doesn't command them to be harmonious, but feels like urging them was going to be enough, which signifies the level of maturity there in Philippi, right? Philippians that he's writing to. Um, so the true companion here, it's likely the leader of the church or the pastor of the church there in Philippi, right? The one that maybe who's receiving the letter directly from Paul, Epaphroditus, delivering it to, to this guy, whoever it is. Um, true companion is likely that leader. He uh, commands this companion to help them get into harmony, to be of the same mind. Um, so all these people he lists, right? He says this. He says in verse 3, True companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and also with the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So who's he talking about there? Are these believers? Why? Book of life, right? In the book of life. And so um, he, he names other people and describes the rest of the workers who have placed their faith in Christ. To all those whose names are in the book of life, the only way you get to be in the book of life is by what? Believing in Jesus, right? Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. It's, it's in Revelation. It describes the great white throne of judgment, right? Um, where all these books are open. It's all the deeds people have, right? Um, and unbelievers stand before God, and he judges them according to their deeds. According to their, it actually has implication of these good works they've done, right? All these deeds, these good works. And then he looks at the book of life. And if their name isn't in the book of life, like a fire, right? And so... He judges them based on that, right? Um, Jesus makes it clear how to have eternal life, how to be put in the book of life. In John 3, 18, he says that the one who believes in God is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In John 5, 24, Jesus says that he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come to judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So you and I get eternal life the moment we believe. I used to grow up and I would think that, oh yeah, when I die, I'll get eternal life finally. It would be great. But actually we get it right when we believe. Place our faith in Christ and we have eternal life. He just says that you have it then and you have passed out of death and into life. Romans 8.1 says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know that we aren't condemned because we stand before God and we're he sees Christ righteous in us. Christ died to pay for our sins and then rose to conquer death and he offered eternal life. And God made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Right? So all that to say, this judgment um, 
um, this eternal judgment, if you're not in the book of life, well then, lake of fire. But if you're in the book of life, it only comes by faith in Christ, then you're good. Right? So he says, he's talking to believers here, talking to believers. Um, <clears throat> Paul is reminding them that they're unified. Reminding believers that they are unified. They have a unifying factor. There's notes on the back table if you're still wanting to, to get any of those. But if there's conflict, it's likely that there's a prideful person in some way. People are prideful about like, oh, well, no, my way is right. Your way is wrong, all that kind of stuff. Um, but Paul reminds them that it's because of Jesus that they're even there. The only reason you're here, the only reason you can have these conflicts, the only reason that you're, you have a relationship with this person in the first place is that Christ saved you, right? Also, he names not one, but both the names. Right? So it can't be like, hey, um, one of them's like, if Syntyche wasn't named, it'd be like, Iodia, that's the one who he names, or that's the one who needs to be the person who does right. But no, he's like, no, both of you need to live harmoniously. Right? It takes two to come back and to be in, in, in fellowship again. Right? Do we see that? So he says, all these believers, right? He says, hey, I want you to live, them to live in, um, in harmony. So you even ask this person who's writing, probably the person reading this letter first, um, the first time, ask you to help these women who shared in the struggle of my cause of These are faithful women who have some sort of, of dispute going on between them, and they're not living in harmony of the same mind. Can we do that sometimes with other believers? Yeah, right. We can cause little things. It can be the way they talk. Sometimes it's the way they do ministry. We can get so irked about, right? Um, but really, we're unified in them, right? We're unified with Christ, in Christ, with them. Okay, so any questions so far about that or anything? Appreciate it, Cool. So look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Both times it says rejoice. It's an imperative, which means it's a command. He's commanded to rejoice. Paul has already commanded this actually twice so far in this letter. So this is four times now that he's commanded them rejoice, right? Have joy. And he's mentioned it like um, somewhere close to 20 times in this letter overall. Is the word joy or rejoice or have joy, joyful, all those kind of things. Um, uh, he just said, my joy and my crown for the, these people and stuff. And so joy is a, is a big theme within this letter. Also. I wouldn't say it is the theme of the letter, but it's a big theme within the letter. He's commanded it now four times to rejoice. This is not an unrealistic command. Paul is not saying, never be sad, right? Never be sorrowful. Because that's, that's impossible. Right? Paul is telling them to, to be happy and never be sad, but rather to focus on all the blessings they have in Christ. Jesus wept. What was the verse reference for that? Anybody know that? John. John, right? It's like something, but you, like, you should probably memorize it. It's like the shortest verse in the whole Bible. So, <laughs> two words, Jesus wept. Um, I should probably memorize it. I don't remember where, where it's at. But, I think there's two different locations where it says that. Okay, yeah. So, hey, twice now it's in the Bible then that Jesus wept, right? So, Jesus had sorrow. He's not saying never be sorrowful. Or to never be be sad. But um, there are times when Paul was sad, but joy and sorrow can happen and come at the same time. Right? You can be joyful and be sorrowful. Uh, many years ago, my great-grandmother ha- had a stroke and she fell. And um, she was already in her upper 80s, so she wasn't doing amazing at that point, And she wasn't going to make it. Right? 
she was on hospice for about a week, a little over a week or so. Uh, I was out of school for a bit to be there with her uh, and stuff t- towards the end. My mom was there with her like the night that she passed away. It was a sorrowful time. Right? It was a sorrowful time of, um, of having to see that pain and the fact that we were going to lose the great-grandmother and stuff. But I knew that she was with God after all that pain, and the pain was over. So because of that, we were able to be joy along with the sorrow. I've been at some, some funerals that are done really well. And it's a time of sorrow because the person's gone, right? They're gone, and we're not going to see them for a bit. Um, but that's the point, right? We're not going to see them for a bit. And we know that if they put their faith in Christ, that they're going to be with God. And they're with God now. And that we will see them eventually again. We don't grieve as if those who have no hope, but we have hope. So there can be joy and sorrow happening at the same time. Paul's not commanding them to never be sad, but rather to focus on the Lord. He's given us so much. Focus on the Lord. There's so much to be joyful about there. So rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. Then he says this, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. So Paul encourages them in verse 5, let a gentle spirit be known to all men, to have a gentle, forbearing spirit known to believing men. Right? No. Right? What's it say? All men, right? Everyone. So all men. This is a command to be kind, to be gentle, to be patient, understanding um, with believers and unbelievers alike. The Greek word has a lot of connotations with it. The Greek word gentle, a gentle spirit, um, has a lot of ideas associated with it. And um, it's like patience, yielding, courteous, kind, and tolerant. All these things kind of go with this word of gentle spirit. In fact, some of you might have a, a different, um, like a, a tolerant spirit or something like that. Who has a different word there in their translation? Yeah. Reasonableness. Reasonableness, right? The is known with all men graciousness yeah all these things actually do come with that word and mean that i mean that's kind of same thing so basically this idea is not insisting upon your own way on every single little detail right be gracious uh, be reasonable be yielding um, and courteous and kind and tolerant so it doesn't mean that you should be yielding as in like, okay, I'm not going to stand for anything, right? I'm not going to stand for morality or anything like that. I'm just going to yield and whatever they want, it'll be good kind of thing. Like, no, that's, we're called to stand for, for things, for righteousness, for good things. Um, but don't be so nitpicky about everything. Don't consider yourself as more important than others, but rather others' interests above your own, like he's already commanded within this letter, right? So here's a sort of warning at the end of this, I think. It's a warning. He says, the Lord is near which sounds like something you would see on that street corner with someone raising a sign, right? The Lord is near. Jesus is coming. Are you ready? Right. Um, and then, um, but he says this, has, it could have a few different meanings here. I don't, I don't really know exactly what it is. It could be all three. But um, let's look at these couple, a few different meanings it could mean. So the Lord is literally near, like watching, right? He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He knows all things. Um, so it could be that he's watching and he's near. So make sure you're acting right. Right? The Lord is near, so make sure that your gentle spirit is known to all men, believers and unbelievers. You're known as this reasonable person. Maybe, right? It could mean that. Um, or it could mean the Lord is coming soon. So don't let these little nitpicky things bother you, but be peaceable instead. 
You know that's only a short time right now compared to eternity with God. So don't let these things cause divisions and be, and be uh, cause you to act in a poor manner, basically, not in a gentle manner, because ultimately you're going to have eternity with God, and he's, he's coming at some point soon. Possibly, right? That could also be another reason why. Um, it could also be, so it could be that, like, hey, God's watching you, right? <laughs> um, so make sure that you're acting right. Or it could be like, hey, it's nothing compared to eternity, so just live peaceably, right? Or it could be the Lord is coming, right? which is, and look up just a few verses in um, chapter 3, verse 20, talks about that. It says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will conform us to his glory. Right? So the Lord's coming is at any time. Right? We're eagerly waiting. We don't know when it's going to happen. And so we ought to live our life as if we're ready to give an account for our actions. Right? So be peaceable. Be reasonable. Be, have a gentle spirit to be known of all men because the Lord is near. He's going to come at any moment. And we don't want to shrink back in shame at his coming. Like it says in First John. We don't want to be like, you know, arguing about something that means nothing ultimately, right, in the scheme of, of eternity with someone. And then, poof, Christ comes back. And we're like, well, that wasn't the best time for him to come back for me, was it, right? No. And so... That's, I think that's probably what the meaning that he means is. That could mean there's other things as well. He could just, I love that so simply so that all those things could happen. Um, but we should be ready to have an account for our actions, ultimately. So, those three meanings could happen. I don't know which one it is. I think it's probably the last one, but just my, my opinion there. Paul commands him to have a spirit of humility, a spirit of gentleness and of patience towards believers and unbelievers alike. The Lord could come at any time. So make sure we don't feel shame at his coming. Right? The Lord is near. He can come at any moment. The doctrine, it's called the doctrine of imminency. Which means that he's imminent so when his coming. We don't know when Christ is going to come back. We at the church. Okay. So he has his commands. He has a lot of commands this morning um, so far. To stand firm, to help these women, um, to rejoice always, and to, not let, I mean, to let your gentle spirit be known among all men. Then he continues and he says this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So now he says for them, after all those other commands, to not be anxious for anything. Um, before we go into that about being anxious, um, some of you might have, and Rachel pointed it out to me actually last night, um, a semicolon at the end of chapter, or verse uh, 5. We have that? But maybe we can continue on. The Greek actually isn't very clear as whether it continues on or not. Either way, a semicolon basically means kind of the end of one idea, beginning of another. Um, if you're a grammar nerd, then maybe you correct me on that. But um, I think that it could connect to this as well, right? The Lord is near, so don't be anxious about anything, right? He's going to come. You have eternity with him, so don't be worried about all this stuff. Uh, don't be anxious about this. But also we see more within this verse too. It says, Be anxious for nothing but everything, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So do you think the Philippians and the Philippian church had some stuff to be anxious about? Maybe? Yeah? Possibly, right? I mean, life was easy back then. There was nothing to be anxious about at all at that point. But Paul is in prison, right? The spiritual leader of the church, basically. They send Epaphroditus to him to help him out, right? Okay, that'll be fine. And then he about dies. Like, he gets sick to the point of death. And they don't know if he's, if he's well or not at all at this point. 
They have conflicts within the church, right? Yodia and Syntyche and other things probably as well. They have unbelievers persecuting them. They have people coming in who say you have to follow the law, right? You have to be circumcised to be saved. That's how you do it. You do the other things as well, to do the law to be saved. Others who say, do whatever you please, right? Just, it doesn't matter. Live in liberality, right? You can just do anything. It's fine. Let alone other things like providing for their families, their daily jobs, stress at work, answering all those telemarketer calls. Maybe not that last one. But you can see how they, they might have causes for anxiety still. And we think that, like, you know, I'm so stressed, and it would have been so nice if we were just back in the, in the pioneer days or back in the, in the days of Christ. God, it would be just so fine. No. I mean, they're stressed then too, right? There's, there's reasons for anxiety then as well. And yet, Paul says for them to be anxious about nothing. Nothing. If I had stopped there, I'd call Paul crazy, wouldn't you? It's like, be anxious about nothing. All right, thank you all for reading this letter, and that's it, right? That's it. But no, he continues. He says he doesn't stop there. He has a contrast. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by principle, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Be anxious in nothing, but in everything let your requests be made known. That's what he's saying. He has some qualifiers there. He says, how do you do it? How do you do it? Well, by everything in prayer. So do it by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving. Prayer is this. Prayer is simply put, talking to God. It's discussing things with Him, talking to Him, um, and such. And then supplication, though, is different. Supplication is an urgent need. It's an urgent need. You say, hey, God, I need this. I am going through a rough time. I'm anxious about all this stuff going on. There's stuff going on in my life that I can't control. I'm just worried about Bring it to God, he says, with prayer and supplication, with an urgent need. I'm at a loss and I need help now. The Bible actually commands us to go to God with our needs. Not to try to do it on our own. It says go to God with that. Instead of getting anxious about things, it says turn everything over to God. Instead of being anxious, give our problems over to God. How many of you get anxious over like little details about things? Right? Three of us. Oh, cool. Um, or even big things, right? Either way. And so we can sometimes get in the mindset that we need to only approach God with the big things. Or only approach Him with the little things. Right? We've got the big things taken care of, but God, you take care of the rest. Or I got these big things, God, but the little things, I, uh, God doesn't need to know that, right? Kind of thing. I, I can do it. Um, but it says here to give everything over to God. And everything that you request be made known to God. Bring it to Him. Uh, if there's things you go to in your life, right? Go through in your life that are causing you anxiety. Go to God with it. Pray to God with it. Bring it to Him through prayer, through supplication, asking for His help, and thankfulness. Don't forget thankfulness. Paul just said to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice because He's given you so much. So with thankfulness, when we're anxious about something, it can be hard to remember um, the blessings that we have in Christ, can it? Because we're so fixated on, okay, this thing, okay, about this thing, what about this thing, this thing's not going to work, I don't know what's going to happen. But then we forget that like, oh, all these things are going really well, right? And so we need to go to Him and pray asking for our needs and thanking Him for all He's given you and for who He is. 
The fact that you can approach him, you can directly approach God of the universe who created you and ask for help. Then we see something amazing. Look at verse 7. Paul says, if we do the things in verse 6, then here is the outcome. Right? Here's the outcome. The peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. This honestly doesn't make sense, right? This peace in the midst of finals week or in the midst of a family crisis going on or in the midst of imprisonment, the peace of God surrounds us whenever we bring everything to him. It guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that the outcome of bringing everything to God was not that all your problems would be solved, was it? No, Paul's in prison, and he's still in prison. Right? He's not saying that, like, pray to God and you'll be fine. Everything will be good, and um, you all of you will be healthy, you'll be wealthy, and everything like that, you'll be good. No, he didn't say that at all. He says that you would have peace. No matter what you're going through, you'd be peaceful about it. The peace of God. Next week, we're going to see a lot more about Paul's life and what it was like. Uh, and how he was at peace, even though it makes no sense to be at peace at all. Right now, he's awaiting trial to see if they're going to kill him or let him go. He says, but be at peace. Don't be anxious. The peace doesn't guide your heart and your mind, but it does what? What does it say? It doesn't say it guides your heart and your mind. It says it guards, right? Guards. Guide, not guard. Or guard, not guides. Um, your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Guards it from anxiety. Right? The cure to anxiety is giving everything to God. So it says here, don't be anxious, but give it to God, and the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. You may still be stressed and be busy, right? Stress and anxiety are different. You can be busy and going through something like, ah, all the way. Like, you can be stressed in the middle of a video game, but you're not anxious about the video game, right? You're just trying to get, you know, doodle jump to go higher. I don't know. That's like throwback. <laughs> right? So you can be stressed about it. Um, but anxiety is a deeper and it's deadlier than stress, right? Anxiety is deeper and, and deadlier in the way that, like, it can, it can overwhelm you. Anxiety can be crippling. You can get overwhelmed by the future or the tasks that have to be done, what, what may happen if you don't get those tasks done and what that means for this and that and that. And it goes on, on and on and on. Right? But give it to God. Pray to Him, asking for help, and thanking Him. What I'm not saying is that the, the whole idea of anxiety and then further on to depression just pray and it'll be fine, right? And that'll be it. It'll be good. That's, that's, not, that's not always the case, right? There are, there are medical things. There, there are things that go on with that that, that, um, that influence that. However, I'd still pray, right? I'd still pray about those things. But I'm not saying that, that when it goes farther down to, like, depression and those sort of things and, and that, that if you pray, you're fine. It'll be it. No, there's sometimes some deeper rooted things. But here it's talking about just anxiety, right? Being so worked up in your mind that you're just like, this is all going to go badly, right? This is all going to be bad. Oh, my gosh, I didn't do this. So this is going to happen. This is, and then I'm going to be on the road in like three weeks and dead in the ditch, right? And it's like you missed one homework assignment, right? <laughs> like calm down, right? Um, 
Give it to God. Give it to God. You're overwhelmed, but it will guard your heart and your minds from the attack of anxiety, an attack of worrying and worrying and worrying. Does that make sense? Do we see that? Okay. Let's continue on. It says this in verse 8. Finally, brethren. Now, if you remember, this is the second finally he's had in this letter he's written. Um, We were talking about last time that finally means more of like, what is left to be said in this is this. Um, So, finally, brethren. He said it in chapter 3, verse 1, I think. Yeah. Um, He says this. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything is worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Paul lists attributes and aspects to ponder or to dwell on. Now let me ask you this. Is anxiety a, um, more of a physical or a mental thing? Mental, mental thing, right? He's, remember, he didn't say that if you give it to God, all your physical problems will be gone at all. But he's like, hey, this is a mental thing for you to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And he goes on and says, here's what you should focus on. Don't focus on all the worries and the stress and all that kind of stuff that brings anxiety. First of all, bring it to God and then focus on these things. The word dwell means to ponder on these things. Which dwell on is like, okay, think about it. But then ponder, it's like, hmm. Right? Like sit in a coffee shop, you look out the rainy window, you just think about it. Right? And so... Dwell on these things. <clears throat> Let's look at them and their opposites. So it says this. Dwell on whatever is true. Whatever is true. Not falsehood. Whatever is true. Think about things that point to the truth and not lies or deceit. Right? Sometimes we can focus on things and, and the lies of people. All this, but no, just focus on truth. Whatever is true. And it says this. Whatever is honorable. <clears throat> what brings honor, not dishonorable things. What things honor others and honor God. What things don't. Truthfully, this one's pretty convicting. Um, sometimes we can think on things that are not honoring towards others or honoring towards God. And we can ponder, we can dwell on them for a while. And they're not honoring God at all. In fact, they might be dishonorable to others or to God. But it says dwell on what brings honor, what is respectable to people. He says this, dwell on what is right, not left. No. So what is right, not wrong, right? But so what is right, not what is wrong. Think about righteous things and actions, not on those that would be wicked or evil. Sometimes we can get so caught up in hating sin that it can make us anxious. You ever had that happen? Or you have some, some people talking like, this world is just getting so worse from the world I grew up in. The America was amazing and there was no problems at all. It's just been so bad and the sin is going rampant. And it's like, now I'm anxious about my future and my kids' future, right? We said, no, just focus on what is right and what is true and what is honorable, what is righteous. Don't focus on all the wicked and the evil in the world. It's bad, right? And we should be aware of it. Don't dwell on those things and just how awful it is. Focus on what is righteous. And then he says this, dwell on what is pure, not the impure. Right? What is pure? This word kind of deals with the divine in a way. So the things that are pure and holy, not the things that stand in stark contrast to God's holiness and His purity. Right? We can think of things that we sometimes dwell upon or think about that aren't pure and aren't glorifying to God and aren't holy. So dwell on what is pure. Dwell 
on that what is lovely and not what brings disgust, right? What is lovely? Kind of like study cafe. And he said it's lovely. And it is. Dwell on it. No. Um, so think on things that God has created that's lovely. Physical things like animals, nature, all of that. Um, and also things that are not physical, like friendship, like laughter. All those things that God has created that are just good, right? That are lovely. Don't dwell on the perversion of these things. When these lovely things are twisted, we see just how far sin reaches. Right? It can be enjoyable to do something maybe for a little bit, and then we realize that that's twisted, and it keeps going, and it's perverted. It's just, it's just bad, right? So dwell on the lovely things. Dwell on what is of good repute, and not disdainful things. How many of you have ever used the word repute? Not many of us, right? Um, so something that is commendable and praiseworthy, basically, what this means. If it is a universally accepted as a thing to be praised, dwell on it. Right? Not universally as in the culture. Because the culture will praise some things that aren't really that good. But if it's universal, like, yes, this is a good thing, or this is a praiseworthy thing, then dwell upon those things. Not things that are looked down upon. Things that are looked down upon. Lastly, <clears throat> Paul kind of opens it up. And he asks them and says for them to discern anything else that is worthy of praise. Anything else that is excellent or worthy of praise. Dwell on those things. So this is a lot about things to think about. Right? Um, why does Paul stress that so much? Right? Why is he stressing, think about this, dwell on this, dwell on that. Like what is good, what is holy, what is pure, what is, um, um, what is, what is righteous, all these things. Well, that's because the largest area of sin in our lives is in our thoughts. In Matthew 5, a few weeks ago, we looked at it, and Christ is talking, and he says, you've heard it said, don't murder, or you'll be guilty before the courts. But I say, anyone who hates a brother in his heart is guilty of murder in his heart. You've heard it say, don't commit adultery. I say, if you look at someone with lust, then you've committed adultery in your heart. And that really opens up and broadens how much sin we do, right? We kind of realize, oh, I am awful, right? And the biggest area of sin ultimately is in, is in our thoughts. And so we're stressing, don't focus on those things, but focus on what is good and what is godly. Dr. J. Vernon McGee says here um, that this verse has been called the briefest description of Christ. Okay. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Whatever is godly, he says, dwell on those. So Paul challenges them to make sure, first of all, that if they're anxious about stuff, give it to God. And then don't go back to thinking about all those things that make you anxious, right? All these bad things, all these things that just kind of overwhelm, but rather focus on the good things. Make sure that their minds aren't avoiding certain topics, but are focused on godly topics. We talked about the idea of um, <clears throat> the illustration someone gave in church one time where they said they were looking for a, a bus driver, right? A new bus driver. And this company was like, we need a driver. So they're interviewing these people. I'm like, okay, how close can you get to the edge without falling off or going off the edge? And this guy's like, I can get a foot within the edge and not fall off. And it's like a mountain view, right? All these things are twisty turning. And like, I can get a foot within the edge and not fall off. I'm like, okay. The next guy's like, I can get like two or three inches and still be fine, not fall off. 
And the next guy they interviewed, and he's like, I can get, like, I'm there, right? I'm right on the edge. I don't go off. I'm good. I'm skilled. And then they interviewed the last guy, and he's like, I stay as far away from the edge as I can. Right? I'm going to be as far away as I can, just push away from the edge and be on that inside of the curve and everything like that. And the illustration gave that, well, that's how we need to be with sin, right? We need to try to stay as far away from it as possible, far away from it as possible. But really, that's not what he's saying here, right? He says, dwell on godly things. So the thing isn't to stay away from the edge, away from sin, see how close you can get to the edge, or to see how far away you can stay from it, but rather focus on Christ, right? Focus on the good things. So you're focusing on the good things, that's good. If you're focusing on staying away from the, from the sin, what are you focused on? The sin. the sin, right? You're focused on that. And if you're dwelling upon how bad it is, it's still dwelling upon it. Rather, focus on what is good, what is honorable, what is pure. Paul then finishes out this statement or this, this section with a, really cool, um, with a really cool thing he says. He says, these things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So all that the Philippians had learned, all that they've received, all that they have heard, all they have seen in Paul, practice them. That's a lot. That covers basically all the bases, right? You've learned it from him, you've received it from him, and if you didn't learn it, um, you've received it, you've heard it from him, and you've seen it in him. Practice those things. Um, in Paul, he says for them to practice them. If they do, what's the outcome? The God of peace will be with them. If they do this, the God of peace will be with you. <clears throat> Think about what Paul has said within this one letter, right? If in Philippians, what if we did everything Paul said just in this one book? Right? One book of the Bible, not the whole book. Let's just, let's just do this one, this one thing. How do you think we would change? How would we live our lives differently? If we just even did that last verse, right? Verse 8, just focusing on godly things. If instead of being anxious, we gave everything to God. If we helped people within the church who had disputes. If we were of the same mind and living in unity in Christ. If we were obedient like Christ was obedient to the point of death. Just as one book, right? That's all we have to do. Just do this even just one book. Like, our lives would change dramatically, wouldn't they? And yet we have a whole Bible. Um, but he says, practice these things, right? He doesn't say, you will do everything exactly the right way. Right? Exactly the right way. He says, practice them, right? Put them into practice. Apply them in your lives. How do you think that would, um, we would act different to other believers and unbelievers? We would live in unity with believers a lot more. We wouldn't have all these divisions. And also, with unbelievers, we'd be sharing the gospel so much more, wouldn't we? Plus, we'd have peace, which is great. Uh, we'd be giving everything to God, like he said to. Wouldn't be anxious. So, these things you've learned, received, heard, and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He starts out, right, and he says, um, first of all, for them to be um, to practice what he said, right? So he says, stand firm in the Lord, in this way stand firm in verse 1, which is therefore the summary statement, and he's summarizing everything he said so far. So stand firm in the Lord with these things. And then he urges them to live in harmony and to help them who aren't living in harmony, in verse 3. And he says, rejoice always, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. 
Be anxious for nothing, but give everything to God, and the peace will guard your hearts and minds. And then dwell on the God-glorifying things, the godly things, the good things. And then practice all of it. Right? Practice all of it. So let's look at some applications before we go into discussion, or no discussion. Um, there's this. Let's help other believers at the beginning. He talks about how um, with this Iodia and um, Syntyche, right? Help, like these two women he talks about in verses 2 and 3. Let's help believers live in harmony. Christ says, blessed are the peacemakers. Did he say blessed are the peacekeepers? No, but the peacemakers. Um, The goal that we want is to live in harmony. Not compromising truth, compromising or love, but living in harmony with other believers in unity. Let's help other believers live in harmony. Second, um, let's give our issues to God. Give our issues to God. Pray with supplications and with thanksgiving. Right? Tell him, like, God, I need help. Right? I am not doing so well right now. I need your help. And he's faithful to hear our prayers and to help us there. It says, don't be anxious. Give it to God, and the peace of God will be there. Right? His peace will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So help other believers give our issues to God. And then dwell on godly things. Dwell on righteous and pure things. Take your thoughts captive. We can't control what our immediate thought is on that situation, right? Like something comes in, we're walking down the street, and we see a bird, and we're just like, oh, a bird. Right? We can't control, like, I thought about a bird. Oh, no, that thing. Um, but I think Josiah actually used this, this example before. But like, you, can control, you can't control if a bird flies over your head, but you can control if it makes a nest in your hair. Right? And so, like, stop it, right? You see it happen, or you see something, you're tempted in a way, um, and you can't control, like, that happening. You're going to be tempted. But you can control what your thoughts go after that. You can take them captive. And he says dwell on Christ, right? Take that captive, dwell on Christ and the godly things instead. Fourth, live out Scripture. Practice those things that you've learned, you've received, you've seen, and you've heard. All in Scripture. What we read and what we hear and what we see in the Bible. Like we said, if we just take Philippians, which, I mean, a lot of you probably have, like, what, one page turn in your Bible? And that's it, in Philippians. Just try Philippians, right? That's hard. We can't do it on our own, can we? On our own power. When we believe in Christ, we get the Holy Spirit. We need to live out that. uh, Live Abide in Christ. There's a verse or a um, song we're going to sing this morning in the main service that actually a couple people at our church wrote. Um, called You Are the Vine. Right? Talk about you are the vine, I am the branches, and I want to abide in you. Because the only power we have is by abiding in Christ. So practice what we hear and imitate Jesus, imitate Paul, imitate Epaphroditus and Timothy, people we see in Philippians. Right? Okay. Well, we are over time, so I'm going to pray. God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you.